be together. Uh, Patrick, you want your iPad? Uh, great to have you. If you're visiting with us, we're doing a, a worship series right now called Unlimited. Uh, we're talking about the nature of God from Psalm 145 and many, many other passages that say similar, uh, have a similar phrase that God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. So next week we're talking about rich in love. Mark Steberg's going to preach for us. Amen. Uh, today we're talking about how God is slow to anger. Uh, with the brothers, uh, the married brothers, on Wednesday we talked about anger a little bit. And uh, it's interesting how we can not be slow to anger. Uh, and, uh, you know, this week, even talking about this this week, I've had probably more opportunities to be angry than normal. Uh, God has a sense of humor, right? And uh, just really reminded of how God is so gracious, so slow to anger. And when you confront God, uh, because we all come into a confrontation with God at times, it's, it's a really good thing that he is slow to anger. Because we all, we, we all come to a point in our life where you really have no excuse. You know, you've just blown it and you're just kind of, you know, kind of that point of, I throw myself at the mercy of the court. We all end up there. Uh, I was uh, talking with my friend here this last week and he said it was okay to share this story. Uh, ben, who's an awesome brother in our church, does a lot of stuff. And he's been really getting blessed in his job. He's kind of been... Uh, advanced and he's he's leading other people now and he's got a lot of responsibility and uh, last week he was trying to do a great job and you know and taking care of this and taking care of that and he had to rush at the end of a work day to go get this other thing taken care of get a, a drug test taken to in order to, to take care of stuff for work so he's rushing he gets in there and and he accidentally left uh, all his tools in the back of his truck as he went in including this uh a thousand dollar generator that belonged to his boss really expensive piece of equipment and so of course he comes out of the drug testing and it's all gone and uh, so I was talking to him on the phone we're talking about something or other and uh, you know he's like I'm sorry bro this is kind of a tough conversation right now or whatever and so I was like he's like I, I was like yeah I know it's been kind of a crazy week for me he's like yeah it's been a really crazy week for me too and he they told me what happened he's like I, I haven't told my boss yet I gotta tell him in the morning it's like, oh, well, let me pray for you, bro. Text me how it goes, you know, tomorrow morning. So he had to go to his boss that next morning, Friday morning, and say, boss, <laughs> I throw myself at the mercy of the court. You know, I, I, here's this expensive piece of equipment that's now gone because I wasn't careful. And, you know, and, uh, you know, his boss uh, graciously let him keep his job and was like, you know, let it be a lesson. Let it be a lesson learned. And uh, had grace with him, and uh, you know, and actually since you know, it's, he's been very gracious. But I feel like we all face that kind of point with God sometimes, where where we just really can't say anything except I've totally messed up, God. And if you haven't gotten to that point, you think, oh no, that's not me. Then that just proves my point <laughs> of how out of touch you are with your own sin, right? Um, because when you really look at God, when you really read the Bible, when you really see his nature, you just go, oh, you know, and you bow your head and you go, God, please, you know, have mercy on me. Um, so we're going to do a lot of reading today. We're going to look at several scriptures about uh, this idea of God being slow to anger. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, 
uh, th we have a bunch at the information table there. Uh, you can run back there and grab one, or we can have an usher bring you one if you need a Bible, or you can look on with somebody near you, because I'm not going to throw all the scriptures on screen. We're going to do a lot of reading. I was at uh, teen camp this last week. At, right after we left church, our whole worship team went up to San Diego teen camp uh, up in the mountains. And so they were, I appreciate our worship team. They were out from 7 in the morning till 2 in the morning. Uh, last Sunday, so they really worked hard, uh, but our whole team went down. Amen. And uh, but it was really cool worshiping with the teens there. Uh, teens, wasn't it awesome? Yeah, they're like, woo! They were on fire last weekend. I'm telling you. I mean, they were jumping and singing and uh, really into it. It was a lot of fun to worship down there. Uh, but uh, it, within the worship time, there was a lesson that Shane Engel did. And, uh, you know, he, at one point he said, I'm kind of losing my voice, so I need a couple volunteers to read. And so he, he just selected, a, you know, a couple brothers, uh, teen brothers to come up and read. And so I thought, oh, he's going to probably have them read, you know, a few verses or whatever. He had them read like two chapters each from like the book of Numbers. <laughs> and uh, actually some of it is, is part of the story we're going to look, one of the stories we're going to look at today. But I appreciated the teens. I mean, they were all just sitting there reading along in their Bibles, quiet the whole time. I mean, it was probably 20 minutes of just reading from a teen that's kind of stumbling over the words, and yet all the teens were into it. And I thought, you know, at first I thought, why is he doing that? And I thought, you know what? We need to, we, we don't give our teens enough credit. You know, they can listen to the Bible, and we don't give people enough credit. You guys can read the Bible and stay up, pay attention, right? So if 400 teens can pay attention while we read a lot of Bible, the grown-ups can as well, right? Okay. So we're going to read a lot of Bible today. So look at Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Uh, as you're turning there, you know, I've shown this to you several times, and uh, I'm going to keep showing it to you because it helps me to get context of kind of the history of God's people. And uh, so if you were to draw a line on a piece of paper and cut it in half, and in the middle represents zero and 2000 on this end and 2000 BC on that end, you can tell obviously this is time. So Jesus was 2000 years ago. Another 2000 years before that was Abraham. And if you divide it in half, that's when David was. So that just gives you kind of the time scale. So then if you divide each of those in half again, uh, then you have that, this is when the Exodus was uh, here, about halfway between there. And this is where the exile was, about halfway between there. So we're going to be looking at a passage right now that's right here. Okay, so this is after they've come out of Egypt, and uh, they are uh, about to enter the promised land, or supposed to enter the promised land. So Exodus 34 and verse 4, it says, So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Now, when it's all caps, that's the name of God, which is Yahweh. So he proclaimed his name. He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming Yahweh, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Amen. We love who God is and this nature of God. But we're going to get into the context of what was happening right here. And then look at this next part that we don't often read as much. Yet, 
he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Wow, what's that about? Okay, this is kind of a side note, but several places that it talks about how God is slow to anger, actually many, many places, it does say he's slow to anger, but he does not leave sin unpunished. He's slow to anger, but he still brings people to justice. And this idea of, of this bringing into you know, the punishment of, of the, the sins of the fathers uh, on their children, what is that about? That seems inconsistent with God's fairness, right? And there are other verses, for example, Ezekiel 18, 20 says, The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. So that says everybody's responsible for their own sin. Deuteronomy 24, 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. So what is God talking about when he says he punishes the, you know, the children of the third and fourth generation? What is that talking about? Well, what, what, you know, reading several commentaries and what I've always understood it to mean is that sin has consequences in this life. And, and you pay the consequences for your father's sin. Every one of us. In some way, if your father was an alcoholic, you pay consequences for that. If your father was abusive, there's issues in your life. And many, there are many sins that are cyclical. There are many sins. How many of us have said, oh, I'm never going to be like my dad. I'm never going to be like my mom. And then you get kids and you get into it and you find the same words coming out of your mouth that your father said or your mother said. You're like, oh, right? So, so sin, sin has that, it's that way. And even in the Bible, even you see Isaac repeat the sin of Abraham. You see, uh, you know, these the sins that are repeated through generations uh, because it's, it's that nature, we grow up in it. But that doesn't mean that in the next life or when we face judgment, that you face judgment for your father's sin. It's that sin has consequences that can, can stay in our families. Now, the, the good thing, and that we're going to look at today is, through the power of God, through the power of Jesus, through the power of, of his blood, each one of us has the ability to be a cycle breaker. Amen. That everybody here, you can see those generational sins be ended with you. And you might feel like, you know, you're facing all these scars from your dad's sin or from you know, the way you grew up. And that, that that's, might be the best that you can have in this life is that you, you are scarred. But your kids, you can, you can break the cycle and then they, can, they don't have to grow up with that same scar that you grew up with. I, I would say that that happened in my family. My, my dad was abused. His father was not there for him. He was uh, sexually abused by a family member. And, uh, you know, just, it, it, he faced a lot of junk. And there was stuff in his family and, and generations before. But, but he shielded me from that. And he still has to go to counseling for some stuff he went through. And he's still, you know, he's still wrestling with things that he went through in his youth. His mom died when he was 11 years old. And then his father checked himself into work and wasn't there. And, you know, he, he went through a lot. But he, he was an awesome dad for me. And I feel like he broke a, a, a cycle in my life. So we all have that hope. So that's, that's kind of the side thing. But that, I think that's what it's talking about when it says the third and fourth generation. Um, so what is the context of this verse that we're looking at? Um, the context is that the, the, the people of God have rebelled. The story is that they, get, they come out of Egypt. They're out of slavery. Now they get to Mount Sinai. God gives them the law. And he's not only giving them spiritual laws, but he's giving them civic laws because he's built, they're building a whole nation. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. They had no government. So they're building an entire nation. So civic laws, religious laws, purity laws, 
And so God is, is going to set all that up. So Moses goes up the mountain to be with God to get the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there, here's what happens. Let's look, uh, let's look back a couple verses earlier. Look in uh, Exodus 32. Exodus 32. Let's start in verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So the, uh, the context here, sorry, my clicker is being a little difficult. There we go. The context here of this verse, this is the first time this appears in Scripture, this idea that God is slow to anger. The context is in the people's rebellion. And, and them giving in to sin as a group. They're, they're, they go against God, they give in to sin. The, it, the, the context is sin and judgment. And Moses gets so angry, he, he, he throws the, the tablets down and breaks them. The, the tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them. Uh, and he comes down, he's mad. Like this calf that they made out of gold. He, he asks Aaron, what happened? And Aaron uh, says, it, it's a classic, if you've ever had a, a you know, tried tried to have a kid explain to you what happened, you know, when you get home. Aaron's like, well, I told him, that they brought me, the people brought me this gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> and, uh, you know, parents, you know, we've, we've seen, <laughs> heard those kinds of explanations before. Uh, but but Aaron, uh, Moses is so angry that he grinds that calf up into water, and he, and he puts it in the water, and he makes the people drink it. And, you know, he's ticked off. And, and so, but, but, and God, God, he and God wrestle with what to do, and, and they decide that, okay, he's gonna, God's going to give the people a second chance. And so this, what we just read in Exodus 34, is when God is proclaiming his own nature, saying, I am slow to anger. I don't leave the people, the guilty unpunished, but I am slow to anger. What was their uh, sin? Well, they, they, there was worldliness. They wanted to be like the people around them. They didn't trust God. Moses is gone for 40 days. We don't know what happened to him. He's a long time coming back. we got to take things into our own hands. They didn't trust God's plan. They wanted to be like the nations around them. The nations around them had these physical idols they could look at and go, there's our God. There's that gold statue. And so they wanted to be like the other nations. They, they uh, gave in to uh, rebellion. They, they gave in to, uh, they wanted to choose a new leader. They, they didn't trust Moses anymore. They, they, uh, they gave in to it says revelry. They engaged in revelry, which means drinking. They, there was alcohol. There was uh, partying. There was sexual immorality. In, in another passage that talks about this uh, verse, it talks about how they, they were engaging in sexual immorality. Because a lot of times when the, the worship of these idols involved sexual immorality. Uh, and it's, that was the way that you would worship some of these gods, was by having sex with people that you know, were not your spouse. And 
So there's a lot going on there. It's, it's basically the sin of worldliness, being like the world around us. And, and I think we can, we, it's easy to kind of look down our noses at them and go, well, I would never make a gold calf, but I bet you've envied the world around you. I bet you've wanted to be like the people that, you know, you see partying and just seem like they, everything's easy for them. It seems like they don't have to try to be righteous. I bet you've kind of fallen into this stuff before. And thank God that he is slow to anger. But sin does have consequences. Why, why does God eventually bring sin to justice? Because he wants to protect us. Why is sin sin? Because God loves us. And he knows the, the devastation and harm that it brings. Okay, so now let's fast forward here to... Uh, Deuteronomy, uh, sorry, Numbers chapter 14. Turn to Numbers 14, if you would. Now, this is interesting. That last verse we read uh, was the, the rebellion with the gold calf, and that took place, it's estimated, in May of 1444 B.C. It's pretty cool that they know that. I don't know how. Now, this we're about to read, you know, I, this was kind of new to me because, you know, you get from Exodus to, to Numbers, Exodus 34 to Numbers 14, there's a lot of reading in there. So if you're reading your Bible and you're, you know, there's a lot of reading. So it usually takes you a while to get here. And you kind of picture this is like years later. When actuality, what we're about to read is only a few months later. They estimate this was in July or August of that same year, 1444. So this is not a long time later when this happens. Exodus, uh, Numbers 14, we see the same uh, nature of God exhibited again. Numbers 14, verse 17, it says, Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you've pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. And God does forgive their sin, but he says these, these people are not going to be able to enter the promised land. They're all going to die in the desert. What was the context? What was the sin? So they get to Mount Sinai, they get the law, they, get, they set up a nation. Now we're going to go into the promised land. So they get to the promised land and ten spies are sent to go into the land and scout it out. Go, okay, where are we going to start? What are we going to do? And so these spies go into the land. They spend some time there. They come back. And what do they say to the people? Oh, we, you know, we, we, we can't do it. The people are too powerful for us. And uh, If you look a little bit earlier in, in, uh, in, in Numbers 14, uh, we'll see the response of the people. The, the, the spies, other than Caleb and Joshua, all the spies are like, we can't do it. These guys are, look at verse uh, 31. The men who'd gone up, sorry, this is Numbers 13, 31. Everybody with me? Okay. The men who'd gone with them said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the, the land we explored devours those leading in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. That night, the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? 
our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt when they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt? So again, the context of this verse on the screen is sin and rebellion again. And this is not long later. This is only a few months later. But they, they, are, they are rebelling again against God. And this quote here is Moses reminding God of his own nature. Saying, God, please don't destroy these people. The Egyptians will hear about it if you just wipe us all out. Because God says, okay, I'm just going to wipe them out, Moses. I'll start over with you and your family. And, and Moses is like, well, please, God, you, you, you are slow to anger. And you are abounding in love. And, and so God relents. And God says, okay, I will forgive them. But all the people here who who were rebelled against me, they're all going to die in the desert. And it's their children who are going to go in instead of them. What was their sin? What was the sin in this situation? It was faithlessness. It was not believing that God could do what he said he would do. Again, it was a lack of trust in God, not believing his plan. It was timidity. It was operating out of fear. It was putting their kids above God's plan. Right? They're like, oh, our kids, our kids. You know, if, if we try to do what God says, what's going to happen to our kids? Uh, and it was rebellion against leadership. They say, let's choose a different leader and let's get them to lead us back to Egypt. You know, it's l looking back. Uh, all of us can relate to that as well. We've all looked back at our old life. We've all not trusted God in his plan. We've all at times worried about our family or our kids or, you know, well, if, if, I, if I put the church, for, if I put God first, what's going to happen to my kids uh, sports, or what's going to happen to, are they going to get into a good college, or, you know, all those things. We've all been there, right? And thank God he is slow to anger, but he does expect us to change. He does respect us to repent. He does ex expect us to, when we confront God and we go, you know, when we're in rebellion and he's slow to anger, there has to be a change in us in that moment. All right, we're going to look at another uh, verse, Nehemiah 9. So we're going to fast forward a thousand years. A thousand years later, the people, uh, they enter the promised land. They're there for a while. They, you have the period of the judges and the period of the kings. But then they, they continue to sin against God. They continue to fall into idolatry. So eventually these prophecies that Abraham had told them, I mean that Moses had told them uh, in this time frame come true. And they have to go off, go off, go off into captivity. And Nehemiah is after they've come back into the promised land after being in ca captivity for 70 years. In Nehemiah 9, they're reading the scriptures and they're recommitting themselves to God. And, uh, you know, they get together, they're reading the scriptures all day long, hours on hours. They're listening to the Bible being read and recommitting themselves. And Nehemiah 9 is this great prayer from Nehemiah. Look in verse 16. He's remembering what we just read about. He says, but they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. You see all those things we're talking about? Therefore you did not desert them, even though they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path. 
nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out or their feet become swollen. And uh, this prayer, it's so awesome. I mean, I encourage you at some point to read this whole prayer because it's a great example of how to pray to God. I mean, the whole chapter, chapter 9. And, and Nehemiah is just recounting all the things that God has done. Again, when you just read this verse, you might think, oh yeah, he's remembering, you know, 50 years ago, or he's remembering 100 years ago. No, this is a thousand years ago, the stuff that he's talking about, that he's remembering. So their history was very important to God's people. And so for us today, we should do the same thing. You know, our history, our spiritual history, like we're reading about today, this is really important to us. It's important that you know where we came from. It's important to you know, that you know the history of God's people. And that's part of your prayer life, even remembering what God has done in the past. You know, when I'm praying, sometimes I'll pray to God as the father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It just reminds me, God is eternal. And here am I, you know, this 44-year-old guy calling on the eternal God. Wow, you know, it helps me to get perspective. But, but, but Nehemiah, again, is reminding God of his nature. And so we see the same quote again. And so the context here is they are looking at the cultural sins of their people and recommitting themselves to God. Uh, because Israel kept falling into these cultural sins. Now, I would put before you that we in America have some cultural sins because of just who we are. And so as we approach God, it's, I think it's important to remember those cultural sins that we have, that, uh, you know, we are, uh, our, our country really was founded on rebellion, Right? Uh, it's Independence Day. And, and you could say, well, it's right that they rebelled. And I'm not going to argue about that. I'm just saying though, our whole country was founded on, we are going to do our own thing. England, we don't need you, right? And, and so that permeates our spirit. And you might not realize it because you're so saturated in it. But if you ever go to another country or if you're ever around people from other countries, you realize we really celebrate rebellion. We do. I mean, our movies celebrate rebellion. I mean, every hero is a rebel. Even Disney movies. You don't have a Disney movie where the kid is obedient to their parents and, you know, and life goes well for them. It's always, you know, you know, uh, you know the, the, the Ariel is dreaming of going up on, you know, she's rebelling against her father or whatever, you know. Those are all the stories. Uh, we celebrate a mistrust of authority. Everything's a conspiracy. Right? And uh, you can't trust the government. Right, Jackie? <laughs> you can't trust the government. You can't trust authority. You know, it's, it's, it's grounded in our culture. And I, I'm not saying, you know, I, I don't say this political party is better than that. Or I'm not getting political. I'm just saying we have cultural sins of, of not trusting authority and, 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 and wanting to be rebellious. And so that comes into play with God. It's easy for us to mistrust God. It's easy for us to rebel against God. And I would say that as a nation, we have, uh, we're in danger of losing our fear of God. Because it's not in style to talk about God's judgment. I know we're talking about God is slow to anger, but every time it says God's slow to anger, it says he's slow to anger. But the context is, thank, thank the Lord, because he deserves to wipe us out. He's slow to anger. Oh, I'm so glad because I am I deserve to be killed right now. He's slow to anger, but he doesn't leave sins unpunished. And so, you know, God is not this sort of grandfather in the sky that just lets you do anything you want. 
God is a God, like look at this verse. This verse is intense. Uh, Nahum, let's look at Nahum. You might not read Nahum in your quiet times every, every day. This is a prophecy. Man, I am having such a hard time. Is this working or are you doing it? Goodness gracious. Yeah, that's right. I just got this yesterday, too. Okay, there we go. Nahum 1. Well, whatever. We're going to turn there anyway. Nahum chapter 1. Okay, uh, this is uh, not too much long after Nehemiah, and uh, you got to turn there. I don't have much on the, I just put on the screen the part that we've been studying, you know, that he's slow to anger, but you got to read this whole thing. It's intense. Like, uh, Nahum, it's a little book. You might have to look at your table of contents. I won't say raise your hand if you had to look at your t- table of contents. It's fine. So it's there for, right? Okay, Nahum 1, it says, verse 2, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. I have never heard that read, like, in a worship time. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't think people use that verse in, in church much. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, amen, and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea, and it dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. You know, that's who God is. That's a part of the nature of God that we can't take away. I mean, God is timeless. He's always, he's before all things. He's the end of all things. He does not change. Thank God that he's merciful. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But we've got to start with, the, the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of what? Wisdom. So knowing who God is, having a sense of his power is so important. And then it does say, verse 7, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust them. So God is patient. God is loving. But you've got to start with understanding who God is. And I, I fear that here in America, again, we have... We are in danger of losing our fear of God. And so what about us? I mean, what, what does that mean? Okay, you, you know, you wrestle with that a little bit. I wrestle with that a little bit. I don't, want, I, I don't want God to be mean. I want everybody to be nice to everybody, and everybody just gets along, and everybody's just, you know what I mean? I don't like confrontation. I, I'm, I'm, like Michael Jackson said, I'm a lover, not a fighter, you know? <laughs> I just want... But, but, you know, this is, who, this is the nature of God. And there's something in me that goes, I like that. I like that there is absolute truth. I like judgment. You know, and, and, and uh, I've read different commentaries that said, you know, for, for most generations, most people have faced incredible hard things. And so for most people, God's judgment was like, oh, thank you that there's a judgment because my life is not fair. 
like we sang about, like, the, like that song talked about, you know, that, that you could tell there's a lot in there about slavery and the things that, that, that people of color in this nation have been through. You know, and, and so many of those old songs that come out of that culture, they're filled with, life is not fair, but I'm going to heaven. You know, and, and so when, 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 when people have been oppressed or people have gone through hardship, saying that God will put everything right at some point, that's, that's oh, thank you, God, that you do see and you do know and you will make it all right. But for us, we're, again, culturally, we're so spoiled and life is so easy for us and so good. And, and we don't really, we don't ever experience death. Even, even though most of our food comes from death, I've never killed anything. And yet almost every meal I eat, something died. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? I have never killed a chicken. And I eat chicken a lot. <laughs> I, I don't even, you know, fishing. I, I'm even scared to like, Take the fish off or whatever, you know. <laughs> Some of us do. Uh, yeah, Steve does. So that's, that's, amen. But I'm just saying that we're so disconnected from, from death and hardship, and, you know. And so we can just, we, everything's easy and, and, and we just don't want God to be this God. And yet this is who God is. And you say, well, I can't serve a God like that. Well, that's your choice. You can rebel against him. I'm just saying, thank God he is slow to anger. Because he's the creator of everything. He could be whatever God he wanted to be. He could be a God who just enjoyed watching us suffer. That's his right. He made us. So thank you that you are a God that you love us and you're compassionate. And so often, you know, you, you encounter the God. The God you encounter depends on who you are in your heart. Do you know that? Uh, listen to this psalm. I, I can't remember if I put it in there, so I'm just going to read it to you. Psalm 18, 25. It says, if it's in there, you can throw it up there, uh, Sherwin. Psalm 18, 25, to the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. So is it the same God? Yeah, but it depends on your heart, right? Oh, it's on the screen. You save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. So it's the same God, but who you encounter depends on the nature of your heart. If you're rebellious towards God, he's going to bring you low. Why? Because he just takes pleasure in watching you suffer? No, because he cares for you, and he knows you're not going to get to heaven as a pride, prideful person, and so he's going to try to humble you. Uh, you know, it, it, to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. If you're devious and you, you know, you're trying to kind of sneak one over on God, you're going to find out you can't outwit God. But if you're humble and you're like, surrendered, okay, God, I, I throw myself at the mercy of the court, you're going to find he's slow to anger. And he always will welcome you back. And, 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 and no, I mean, so many stories Jesus told are about no matter how much you mess up, no matter how far off you're there you get, he's always waiting for you. But you got to return to him. You can't go, okay, I'm coming back. You know, the, the story of the prodigal son, we love that story. And the father is waiting for him. But the son doesn't come back and go, okay, I'm back, dad, but here's how it's going to be. Right? I'm back, God, I'm, I'm back, son, I'm, uh, Father, and, and you know, here's, here's, what I'm, here's what I want. The, fa- the son comes back and says, oh, can you just let me be one of your slaves? I don't deserve anything. I'm so sorry. And the father loves him and throws a party and, and has a, you know, uh, throws his arms around him and is welcoming and waiting. But it's because he came to God humble. And so you're going to encounter the God how you encounter God is going to depend on the condition of your heart. Romans 11 says, consider the kindness and the sternness of God. So it's kindness or sternness depending on 
how you want to approach him. And so these verses we talked about, like when, when uh, Nehemiah talked about the rebellion, he called them stiff-necked. Stiff-necked. What does stiff-necked mean? You know, I have woken up before stiff-necked. You know, and I can't, we call it lurch, where the whole day I'm like, Dust is over here, and she calls me, I'm like, huh? <laughs> I don't think that's what he's talking about. The, the, the word stiff-necked, it, it means you're not willing to bow. You're not willing to surrender. You're not willing to humble yourself. You're like, no, 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 I'm, you know, my way. Stiff-necked. We've all seen that in our kids before when they're little, you know. It's an unwillingness to surrender. And so, again, this verse, it says, you save the humble, but you bring low those whose eyes are haughty. I don't know about you, but I would rather be saved. <laughs> you know, I would rather be lifted up by God, but that means I got to make myself humble. I got to approach him and I got to surrender. So the one thing I want you to take away today is God is slow to anger. Don't be slow to surrender. God is slow to anger. Praise God that he's that way. But don't be slow to surrender. If you want to fight him, he will take you on. I, I love this verse I found in, in Proverbs. I don't think I'd ever seen it before. It says, uh, Proverbs 19.3, A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. A person's own folly leads to their ruin, and yet their heart rages against the Lord. So many people, you know, their lifestyle, the things that they're doing, it leads to ruin in their life, and then they're so mad at God. And yet it's the only, now, now do bad things happen to good people? Sure, they do, and that's a whole other sermon. But my point is that a lot of people, if you really think about it, it's their own folly. That's been me before. My own folly led me to, to disaster. But then you feel tempted to blame God. Why are you letting this happen to me? Maybe it's for my good, so I'll humble out and, and, and repent and, get, and surrender to him. That, that's our part. So our part is to surrender. And we're going to look at a few verses in, in Hebrews here. Uh, turn over to Hebrews 3. God is slow to anger. Don't be slow to surrender. So what does this mean for us? So we're going to fast forward to Hebrews as Hebrews talks about what we just read about. We don't know who the writer was. Um, Jackie believes it was Priscilla, and it should be called Shebrews. It could have been Priscilla. It could have been Apollos. It's written in super well, super good Greek. Can you just fast forward that for me, Sherwin? Oh, go back one then to the Hebrews one. Uh, we're going to look at Hebrews 3. Uh, it says, so, so, Hebrews is talking about what we just read, about the rebellion of God's people there that we just read about in, in Exodus and Numbers. And it says here in uh, verse 7, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, and for 40 years saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, Their hearts are always going astray, they have not known my ways, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So according to this verse, does God ever get angry? Yes. Uh, God does get angry. Is he quick to anger? No. He's slow to anger. But the point the Hebrew writer is making is today, if you hear his voice, if God is telling you something, if God is leading you somewhere, if God is trying to do something in your life, 
don't rebel against him like they did and go, well, I want to envy the world. I want to be like them. Or, no, I'm afraid. Or, well, I'm, I don't know what's going to happen to my kids. Don't, he says, don't harden your heart. Because that, that's what happened to them. They hardened their hearts. And so even though God was slow to anger, there were consequences there. So for us, we need to take that as a warning. And so it says in verse 12, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. As it has just been said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. So again, he's talking about what we just read about that story. And, and he's saying, don't let each other get that way. Because our default is for that to happen. is for our hearts to start to drift. For us to get a sinful, unbelieving heart. And so we, what's the, how do we keep each other from getting that way? Encouragement. It says encourage one another daily. Just being together, helping each other, sharing what we're going through in, in the struggle. It helps us to not get off track. And then it, it, it says, uh, let's skip down a little bit. This is all really good, but um, skip to verse 12. So he's talking again about uh, not rebelling like they did. And in verse 12 it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So God's word is, is powerful enough and strong enough to, to kind of cut through. We all put this fake external, exterior around us. We all have kind of like who we really are and our Facebook us. You know what I mean? Or our Instagram us or our kind of who we show to the world. And, and yet there is a real us. And you know... It, as you grow in the faith, hopefully you become more and more genuine and, and you know, what you see is what you get. But, but, but we all kind of, we, we guard ourselves, we shield ourselves. But the Bible says that God's word penetrates and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. You might be feeling that way right now, like, man, this is kind of a hard sermon. Or, you know, I thought this was slow to anger. He's supposed to be talking about how nice God is. Jeez. You know, I don't know where you're at right now, but, but God's word has the ability to kind of get into your heart. But, but I would argue that's a good thing because here it says everything is uncovered before, before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows what's really going on anyway. And if we all at some point will face God, why not uh, know what he really feels now? Why not, like, let's dig into his word and see, okay, how does God view me? Because a lot of people are kind of in spiritual la-la land. I mean, so many people... You know, they kind of, I believe there's a God, but they don't really investigate. And so they're just sort of going through life with no real knowledge of who, who God is or what he really says or what his word really says. If, if, if really there is a heaven and there really is a hell, there's nothing more important than being right with God. And there's nothing more important than knowing how he feels about you now. And, you know, what, what is that relationship? So my appeal to you is to get into the word. If you've never read the Bible before, then get into the word with somebody else from, the, from this group. We love to get into the word. And just read scriptures and see what it means in our, our daily lives. If you are, have been around a long time, don't lose that. Don't lose letting the word cut you. Don't lose letting the word get in your heart. I think we can kind of sometimes drift in that. And we read other spiritual books or we just don't have quiet times. And we start to get really tweaked in our thinking. And there's nothing like just reading, you know, spend two hours and read the Bible. And you're like, wow, because your heart gets on fire. 
and you, you, really, you, you see God's perspective. So, so why not let him cut your heart and expose your heart now and, and so that you can respond how you need to? Because here's the thing. Look at verse 14. We're going to close with this. Uh, Therefore, since we have a great priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you are willing to let the Bible deal with your heart, if you are willing to approach God with humility, you will always find grace. And here he's saying, Jesus has been through everything you've been through, so he can relate to you. And he wants to, to be there for you. If you, go, if you approach God stiff-necked, you know, my way, my way, my way, you're going to find God is stern. But if you approach God with humility and you surrender, and you go, God, you know, nobody's asking you to be perfect. God never says be perfect. He says be humble. He never says, you, you know, you can never mess up again. No, in fact, he says you will mess up again. So just come to me humble. And you will find grace and mercy in your time of need. And so we're going to have a, a, an awesome opportunity right now to hear a story of a brother who was with God and then he rebelled against God and now he's come back to God and he's being restored to the faith. And uh, he's being restored to the fellowship today. He's going to read a letter and share a little bit about kind of his journey. And I think it will really put flesh on what we've just been talking about. That when you come to God humble, man, he just is so awesome. He's so gracious. He's so compassionate. He is slow to anger. And he wants every one of us to have that right relationship with him. So figure out what the Holy Spirit is, is saying to you right now. Uh, you know, as, as, uh, as we've looked at these verses, as you hear the sharing, you know, is there, is there a way that you have been rebelling against God? Whether you're an old Christian, whether you're a new Christian, whether you're just visiting here for the first time, is there a way that you're stiff-necked, you're fighting God? Uh, then I, I, I appeal to you, God is slow to anger. Don't be slow to surrender. And so we're going to uh, hear a little bit. I want you to keep this verse open, and we're going to meditate on that verse as we take communion. So Celie's going to share. Uh, Celie uh, was baptized in 2000. Uh, when uh, Dustin and I were brand new in the ministry, we were uh, leading the, the, the Long Beach sector at that time. And I remember studying with him, and, and uh, he's going to share his story. But he's going to share, he's going to do a song that he wanted to share that really talks about this. And then he's going to pray for communion, and uh, we'll have communion together. So I'm going to, let's give our attention to Celie right now. <laughs> 